Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hi, I'm Alyssa Wilkinson, sitting in today for Sean Illing. I'm a film critic here at Vox. I write about movies and about Hollywood, but I also end up talking to a lot of people about movies, especially horror films. Some people cannot bring themselves to watch horror movies. Other people are obsessed. But what I find in my conversations is that when horror films work, it's not just because they make us jump or gross us out. It's because they tap into some buried unconscious fear. They flip over the rock where the creepy crawlies hide and make us look at them. We scream, we wince, we shudder, and if the movie is good, we come to confront the things we'd rather look away from. Some horror sticks to rudimentary fears of being haunted by ghosts or stalked by things that go bump in the night. But other horror manages to tap into the ways in which the world we live in is its own kind of horror movie. And in Hollywood, no genre has done this better than black horror. I'm Alyssa Wilkinson, and this is The Gray Area. If you want to talk black horror, you call Dr. Robin R. Means Coleman. She's the vice president and associate provost for diversity inclusion and chief diversity officer at Northwestern University, where she is a professor of communication studies. She's written several books on black horror and black comedy. And along with her co-writer, the critic Mark H. Harris, she's written a new book, entitled The Black Guy Dies First, Black Horror Cinema from Fodder to Oscar. In The Black Guy Dies First, she and Harris have crafted a very fun and very witty introduction to black horror films from the dawn of cinema to the present. They examine themes like religion, social concerns, and various tropes that have presented themselves in the genre. But the book is a trove even for people who don't like horror or who aren't cinephiles because it helps illuminate the ways that black horror does more than just freak audiences out. The history of black horror shows how inequity in Hollywood has shaped the attitudes of a nation toward black people and also shows us what's really going on beneath that rock. I think what you do really well in this book is that you use horror as a lens onto kind of that larger story. And obviously there are a lot of different genres that you could use to do that. You know, there's comedy, there's drama, there's all these different genres. So why does horror present itself as a good lens for looking at Hollywood? I love that you said that there's comedy, there's drama, 
Because horror grabs all of that. You're right. So there's no genre that's absent from a horror film. So I write in the book that horror, particularly Black horror, is our social syllabus. And so that's one impetus for the book, which is to really tell a story about Black history, Mm -hmm. about film, about representations, and to do all of that through the horror lens. Now, horror itself is important in some ways because it reveals our kind of social anxieties, what scares us, and it allows us to look at our world sort of through our fingers, right? And that feels a little bit better than confronting the day-to-day horrors and traumas that we encounter. Mm -hmm. Although increasingly, the day-to-day is scarier than anything we could have imagined on the big screen. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to use that as a kind of backdrop to tell a story about American history and Black history. Horror is a really good example of the kind of tropes and cliches and stereotypes that U.S. media industry falls back on. Mm. And we use this as a conversation, a way into the conversation to talk about those as well. Hence, the Black guy dies first. For listeners who maybe aren't big horror people or they're not aware of it, what what are you referring to when you title the book The Black Guy Dies First? So there's two ways I want to answer this. And one is going to be The Black Guy Dies First, and then I'm going to totally retreat from that. So the first is that this is a trope where you see Black people show up in films, and it's not just horror, but in, in the horror genre where... Black life is so incidental. It is so, the relevance is is sort of so dismissive that they are annihilated almost immediately. So there's a symbolic annihilation that the genre makes us sort of deal with. The best way to define this is to illustrate it. And that's Spider Baby. Mantan Moreland, who is a had long history, particularly in the 30s and 40s, a famous kind of character actor, comedic actor, very popular and well-known, shows up in this horror movie, Spider Baby, and he is so incidental that they don't even give him a name. So what's that the equivalent of? It's like famous actors of today, you know, like Leo DiCaprio. And we're like, let's put him in a movie and we're not even going to give his character a name. So Mantan Moreland shows up as the messenger and is on screen just for about a minute or so before he is completely annihilated in a really senseless way by the sort of main characters, which are this creepy, weird family who's stuck in time. But I won't give away spoilers. Sometimes the Black guy doesn't die first, or at least not in the first 30 or 60 seconds, but ultimately does. Like a Scatman Crothers in The Shining or Ben in Night of the Living Dead. So you just said, I think, what the significance in some ways of the trope is. One thing that you established really well in the book is that this is so common that it becomes something that's spoofed in, like, satirical horror movies, right? But as you say, it's illustrating a larger issue in Hollywood history, right? Which is that frequently Black actors are given parts that are sidelined. They're kind of there to facilitate the main story. Or if not, they fulfill all these other kinds of roles that you all point out, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But why 
was this happening? I mean, obviously, I think most people can take some guesses, but what are the factors that kind of lead to this long history of characters being basically inconsequential enough that they can get knocked off at the beginning of the movie and the movie keeps going? Yeah. And it comes up in two ways, two tropes that we talk about in the book. First, the Black guy dies first, but also the quote-unquote sacrificial Negro. Mm -hmm. And both of those tropes are really gesturing to the ways in which Black people in the real have been in service and in servitude to whites and whiteness. And so cinema has offered up a narrative that Black people were in service and servitude, and their sacrifice, their annihilation has to be present and it helps sort of facilitate white progress. And there's some business reasons that it kind of happened this way in early Hollywood as well, which we'll get to in a minute. But I did want to back up to something you mentioned, which is Night of the Living Dead. Yes. Because it's a great movie. <laughs> it's a fabulous movie. It's a wonderful movie. 1968, George Romero. It's important for a couple different reasons in Hollywood history. I'm thinking specifically of the ones you raise in the book, which have to do both with zombies and with the casting of the film. So can you talk about both of those things and why the movie was interesting and significant when we talk about those? So the first is, I'm going to add a third point, if that's okay. Great. And that is, Robin R. Means Coleman was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. <laughs> For horror heads, it's total horror cred. For those who don't know the relevance, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is where George Romero filmed Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, sort of in and around the city. Mm. So I like to talk about horror as sort of being in my DNA because I was raised on a diet of these horror films. Love it. <laughs> but that also speaks to what you're talking about, about the importance of Night of the Living Dead. And people sort of think it's interesting for me to say that there was such a provocative and innovative realism, right? It's shot in black and white. There's this whole kind of socio-political context, both of what's going on in the long civil rights movement around the Vietnam War, the tensions that we're feeling in, the, in America. And then there is Ben, played by Dwayne Jones. Didn't know if the truck was going to explode or what. Could still hear the man screaming. This thing is just backing away from it. So what's crucial about Ben showing up in this movie is that we know that Romero has often said, and that story kind of expands, that Dwayne Jones was um, benefited from colorblind casting. Which is to say that the part wasn't written for a specifically Black actor, right? Right. Yes. That's right. And so that's even interesting because that means I didn't write this with all of the tropes that we identify in the Black guy dies first. That wasn't thrown in at the beginning. So suddenly that becomes colorblind casting. But Dwayne Jones's appearance, that doesn't mean he doesn't carry with him his Blackness, his culture, his history, how we understand Black people in white spaces, particularly in 1968. All of that comes with him. So when you see a Black guy on screen in 68 smack a white woman, suddenly colorblind goes out the window. When you see him shoot a white guy, 
colorblind goes out the window. And now we understand these people in this farmhouse is not only navigating a zombie apocalypse, not only navigating the trauma that they're going through, but now they are navigating to some degree race relationships in that space as well. Mm -hmm. And the premise of Night of the Living Dead is that there are people in a house and there are zombies coming. By now there are no more screams. I realized that I was alone with 50 or 60 of those things just standing there, staring at me. But you write about how even the zombie idea of the zombie, the mythology of the zombie, has roots in Black culture Mm -hmm. and also was changed by this movie. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, there's a mythology about zombies that really is connected to kind of voodoo and that kind of robotic, unthinking, dull kind of worker, right? Brainless, mindless, but that can keep moving. And so that's a mythology that comes out of, you know, the ways in which slaves were sort of We imagined or hoped that slaves would work towards a U.S. economy or a global economy. It was the humanity, the humanness that got in the way of sort of being able to work people to death. So the imagination is that there are these entities that can be worked forever. You know, in early zombie movies, they were on plantations. They were cultivating turpentine and and sugarcane and and all of these sorts of things. They were set in Haiti. And, And so that's where that zombie mythology comes from. But Romero does something really important. He absents us from that. So now there's two really innovative moments. The casting of Dwayne Jones, this colorblind casting, but now he's also absenting the zombie from those awful, dreadful stereotypes of a kind of unthinking, enslaved people. And now the zombies come from who knows? Is it a meteorite? Is there some, you know, has something happened environmentally, which is really interesting? And now they're sort of mindless, but also together. Mm driven, you know, to consume, to eat. And this time it's us. Yeah. Got to have your brains for breakfast, right? Brains. (laughs) Brains. (laughs) Zombies are just one big horror trope in Hollywood. What are the others? And where do they come from? We'll discuss this and the man who's throwing them all out, Jordan Peele. That's coming up after a quick break. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. 
So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. I want to actually ask you about some of these stereotypes or character types that have persisted in in American history and especially in Hollywood history. I mean, they become very apparent when you start to study them, but sometimes I think that I don't sometimes think this. I always think this. Whatever we're used to seeing on screen becomes kind of like a roadmap for how we see one another, right? Mm -hmm. And so in the book, you do a really stellar job of combing through film history and identifying different types that characters have been forced into and also people who tended to play different types. But for instance, just to name three, you have the spook type. Yes. The witch doctor type, the rapper type. So can you talk about what that means for watching films when there are these types and kind of, you know, where do they come from? <laughs> yeah, just like the black guy dies first or the sacrificial Negro, which we talked about, they tend to come out of sort of white imagination, but that doesn't mean that all filmmakers in some ways aren't impacted or affected by that. So you will see, you know, like spook characterizations, that sort of comic Negro, I'm scared, bunk-eyed, feet don't fail me now, quaking. You'll see that applied in a number of different film contexts. An equivalent that doesn't quite show up in horror, Black horror as much as the quote-unquote dumb blonde, right? We had a whole series of movies based on that stereotype, that trope, not in horror, but in kind of comedy. So Hollywood filmmakers, no matter their race, color, or creed, are not immune to adopting these tropes because there's a diet of them. But then what does that mean for filmmaking? I'm going to have to fast forward as to Jordan Peele, because it's Peel who's looking across the landscape of these tropes. And I'm going to quote his movie. He says, nope, we're going <laughs> to get out of that. <laughs> and we're going to do something different. So Peel is exciting because he's explicitly rejecting those tropes. And Peel's movies, particularly for maybe white mainstream audiences that aren't as steeped in horror history, his movies felt like a bolt from the blue because maybe they had never watched Black horror or hadn't realized that they were. And he's doing something very different. But what's wild to think about is that those movies came out not all that long ago, right? It took that long yeah. for those movies to break consciousness. Why does that happen? It happens in part because Black horror in particular has been sort of under-budgeted and under-resourced. I'm, I'm a horror scholar who looks back to the 1890s. Wow, yeah. And it's not always great, right? Some of this is Blackface representations of Blackness, but we're seeing themes of Blackness show up as early as the 1890s. Mm. So we have to ask ourselves, why do we think it's a Black horror renaissance today when we have decades 
of now Black filmmakers Oscar Micheaux in the 20s and 30s, Spencer Williams in the 30s and 40s. Over the decades, the 70s was sort of a heyday of Black horror, right? Blackula and um, Blackenstein and all of these sort of derivative movies. So are we in a golden age of Black horror? Is it really a, a renaissance? If you're looking at a genre as far back as the 1890s, a horror scholar would say no. Mm. What makes this important is exactly that. Peel is disrupting the tropes. Mm-hmm. He has significant funding. And then that results in him going mainstream. And that mainstreaming earns him an Academy Award for a really high-quality film. You know, this is now Silence of the Lambs and Rosemary's Baby terrain. This is huge. And so that's why it feels like it's something new, that it's so recent. But in fact, we know that Black horror has been around for at least 100 years. Mm -hmm. To refer to something you said earlier, one of the reasons Get Out succeeds is that it is very funny, too. (laughs) Look, what I'm about to tell you is going to sound crazy. You ready? All right. I believe they've been abducting black people, brainwashing them, making them work for them as sex slaves and shit. Oh, sorry about the shit. Sorry. And it's a movie with a lot of sticky sayings that kind of still persist in culture, right? It feels very knowing and very of the moment. And it's also addressing things that people know are are there, are issues, are like out there in the world. That's right. I think that's why it was so important that the Black Eye Dies First be. We take a very comedic approach. So much about Black horror is really funny. So people are often asking me about the boundaries between genres. Black horror has it all, right? Mm -hmm. Including a significantly comedic element. There are some films that people may have forgotten, but are very funny. A Vampire in Brooklyn, Eddie Murphy's entry into this is funny. Snoop Dogg does an anthology, Snoop's Hood of Horror, right? Those are funny. So there are elements of comedy and there's elements of comedy that are fubu, for us, by us. So either you're in on the joke or you're not. But there are also some other accessible jokes. And that's what we tried to gather up in the book as well. Let's talk about Nope briefly, since we're on the Peel topic. Yes. You know, I'm hoping everyone who's listening to this podcast has seen Nope. Or if they haven't, they need to rush out and make sure they do that. But what are some of the ways that that movie in particular interacts with some of the ideas in your book? Because that's a movie about Hollywood, right? It is. It's a, you know, Peel is very pedagogical. He's very much about kind of teaching and having us take away to learn something about our social world. That doesn't mean that's required of all all films, all Black horror films. Sometimes horror films can just be that. They can be scary and, you know, entertaining. And Peel does a really good job of balancing those two. What's really important about Nope as Peel's third entry on the heels of Get Out and Us is that now we're starting to figure out his methodology. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. We know the Black guy isn't going to die first. And we're now starting to figure out that maybe, you know, the Black guy, the Black people in this aren't perhaps going to be annihilated at all. So the ways in which Peel does a fabulous job of disrupting the tropes and stereotypes that we talk about in the book is he really leans into 
smart, provocative character development and narrative. Mm. So for someone who hasn't seen Nope, can you just describe what the plot is? We don't have to give anything away. It's a tricky one. <laughs> it is, right. I'm sort of thinking, how would I do that? We can do it together, perhaps. But yes. this, this is a, a film about a brother and sister mm-hmm. who have been, um, the family business has been kind of ranching, horse ranching. Mm-hmm. And they have, on occasion, hired their horses out yes. to appear in, in Hollywood films. Yes. And over this ranch is an entity who is now disrupting not only their livelihood, but literally their lives. Bro, what'd you see? Something above the clouds. That's big. How big? Big. And whether they're going to live or perish as a result of this thing that is over their ranch and is disrupting their lives. Mm-hmm. But along the way, we learn a lot about not only the human condition, the Black human condition, but there are other interesting messages in there. Messages about influencers and social media and profiteering, about... Spectacle and... Yes, The yes. draw of spectacle, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. About the ways in which sometimes very horrific things are turned into spectacle or turned into profit, Mm -hmm. how we've become desensitized to that. And our first impulse is to pull out our camera rather than to intervene or to care. So there's a lot of layers with Nope before we even get to the fact that he has disrupted some of those tropes, given his version of both, you know, not the Black guy dying first, but also his version of a final girl. So that actually brings me to a question that you cover very well in the book, but maybe we can hit it in brief here, which is the success of Get Out in particular and also of Peel's larger production company. This has all led to more, I think he's calling it socially conscious horror or, or, you know, specifically Black horror. There's always a couple of projects that I know about, or you go to Sundance and you see a bunch of projects that kind of fit the bill. And one thing that I know and you know about Hollywood is that things tend to go in cycles according to whatever executives think will make money, right? So, you know, if we've seen that force kind of being exerted by the fabulous success of Get Out, is that something that was mirrored in Hollywood history? Are there moments where Black horror has enjoyed more favor or more success because it was successful? And then why does that fall off? So this is really interesting, this conversation about woke horror, right? And there's a film critic, Ann Bilson, who talks about those entities that give out awards or some film critics hate the horror genre so much, right? In its sort of purest form, that they're looking for and want to describe some of this horror as woke or elevated or insightful horror. And that's interesting because that's one small part of the horror genre, but there are also other parts, other ways in which horror shows up. And so Peel's film is certainly celebrated as being sort of woke and elevated. Have we seen that before? Not necessarily in Black horror to this degree, mm. right? And I would say the horror genre is does not often get an Academy Award. Yeah, that's right. So 
No part of the genre often sees it to this degree. But Black horror has experienced cycles of great popularity. And we would point to the 1970s, the so-called Black exploitation era, that gave us Blackula, right, as an example, which was really quite popular. That era of movie making that gave us Ganja and Hess, which is a brilliant, gorgeous movie, that's a period where we would say that was kind of the heyday of Black horror as well. Mm. That's so interesting because I don't know that everyone who watches and enjoys what feels like the new renaissance in woke horror connects those, right? But there is a connection that scholars have been making. And I think it's really, it's really interesting. It's, you know, something that is due for a larger reclamation, perhaps, um, and a broader among cinephiles. So I, I want to ask you, though, about a claim from the book that could strike listeners as very provocative. And I, I sort of laughed and was like, yep, this is totally right when I read it. You write about the Purge franchise. There's five of them. And I guess just to briefly explain for anyone who hasn't seen them, it kind of rests on a simple premise, which is that sometime in the very near dystopian future, I don't know, next year, right? <laughs> a purge night has been written into law in which all crime committed that night alone is unpunishable. This is not a test. This is your emergency broadcast system announcing the commencement of the annual purge sanctioned by the U.S. government. And that is, as it turns out, a very fruitful premise for horror films. The claim you and and Mark make in the book is that The Purge is, and I'm quoting here, perhaps the most sociopolitically radical movie franchise of all time. Yes, yes. Which is, I don't think, something people realize. Yeah. So why is that? Why make that claim? And also, why does the reception of that series by Black audiences differ from the way white audiences tend to watch it? And what does that tell us about how we watch movies? So first, I'm going to shout out Mark. Mark is the absolute Purge fan and Purge expert between the two of us. Mm -hmm. What I do think is interesting about the Purge series and why there's something fascinating about its radicalness is that it reminds me of a scholar, Candace Delma, and I won't go too deep into that, but she talks about uncivil disobedience. And I talk about that. I take up that concept and talk about it in my scholarly life mm. about what happens when you have kind of a reversal. If you think about the first purge and the first purge is about the annihilation of Blackness. But then if you think about Black horror, Black horror is absolutely a history of the reversal of that. It's the annihilation of anti-Blackness. So what does it mean to purge our lives of those who propagate an anti-Blackness? That's what's interesting about The Purge. And that's what's interesting about these films is that you continue to make these deeper meanings and reflections. And so, yes, it's totally entertaining, but sometimes a couple months later it hits you and you go, wait a minute, what if The Purge was a thing? And what if we flip the script? That's the power of horror. Absolutely. And I laughed when I read in the book that Something to the effect that, you know, Black audiences understood exactly what was going on in these movies, watching them. Yes. And that um, white critics and audiences certainly have not always gotten that, right? Yes. 
But the purge is like, it's like January 6th. Yeah. Somewhere between World War Z and January 6th, where people just ran over and through the country. It was a day of lawlessness and an attack on democracy. Mm-hmm. That's what that looked like. And the purge says, oh, you know, we, we see that, well, we're just a half a step away from kind of the legality of that. I mean, that was about overturning something that had been lawfully ratified. Suddenly, the perch doesn't seem so outrageous. Coming up after one more quick break... What's the future of Black horror? The Oscars are calling for increased representation, but will any of it improve what we're seeing on screen? I kind of want to pivot to talking a little bit about the future and, you know, what we're seeing in Hollywood right now, which is one, the Oscars are coming. And I don't think we have a movie that fits this bill exactly. But one thing that often happens with the Oscars that you certainly write about is that Black characters and movies often are defined by victimhood, (laughs) that it's been surprisingly hard to shake that in Hollywood. And are there movies that you feel have been able to shake that or are really good examples of movies that were praised that didn't? And do you think things are changing at all in the way people approach that narrative? So, you know, it depends on whether earning an Academy Award is the measure. Yes. <laughs> and I would say that sometimes those Academy Award winning, nominated or winning films you know, may not be the standard that we're looking for, right? Or what's required of a film to get that kind of recognition maybe isn't what we want. Mm, mm -hmm. However, I have some favorites out there that I think disrupt all of the conventions that we talk about in the book and almost everything that Peel does, certainly. Mm -hmm. But one of my favorites is out of the UK and it's Attack the Block. Mm, mm -hmm. Yo, check it. More. More what? Them things. Lovely fireworks. Mummies. Alien invasion. Of course it is. I'm killing them. I'm killing them straight. Let's get tooled up, blood. It feels a little sci-fi-ish, but there's a monster. And the monster's killing people. And they're trying to get away from the monster. So this is a really cute film. (laughs) I often say it's like The Sandlot, but not. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. A cute film of a group of young boys who are joined by an adult, a woman who's a nurse. And together, they realize that there's something that is attacking their community from outer space. And they've got to figure out how to fight this monster. But first, they have to figure out their own relationships. And this is sort of like what we saw in Night of the Living Dead, but not. It's better because there's communicating across race, across class, across age, across gender. There are ways in which it interrogates the way young people are brought up under these, you know, 
tropes of masculinity. All of that is happening in this really kind of cute, funny film. There is no Black guy dies first. These are kids who are streetwise, smart, innocent, and it's just a really cute film. Mm. It's one of my favorites. I was reading something in the book that really struck me. I'm often interested in how the way labor is structured in Hollywood affects what we end up seeing on screen. And of course, that has big effects for how we live with one another. And I just want to read a quote from your book, which is you write, the mostly white decision makers in Hollywood don't have a great track record of reaching outside their racial bubble, resulting in bit parts consisting of crude caricatures and flat stereotypes, or simply shrugging and giving the characters of color the oft literal acts. But even when people of color are cast in significant roles... The rationale isn't necessarily for the purposes of increased representation. Yes. And you write a little bit about a, I believe it was a SAG clause at the time, SAG being the Screen Actors Guild, that allowed producers to pay a different amount to actors if there was a certain amount of non-white actors. And those are inclusive measures that are like probably well-intentioned, but if we know anything about Hollywood, it's that... Any loophole that will close budget gaps is one that people will be looking for. So do you think those kinds of inclusion efforts help? Is this kind of like an unavoidable issue? What kind of efforts would help increase representation? Or do we need to just not look to the labor unions to do that? How do you think about that as someone who's studied this? So this is what I love about this sort of union between me being a chief diversity officer in higher ed and also being a scholar. (laughs) Everything about our work in the diversity space, in the DEI space, says that a more diverse cadre of thought makers, those who are sitting around the table, makes for a better product, whatever that is. Ideas, movies, you know, widgets, whatever that is, there's a better outcome. Mm -hmm. And so This isn't just sort of about, oh, so we need diversity of thought. What we need is a diversity of histories and cultures and experiences. And if you're going to write about a diverse world, which you need to do because our world is diverse, then you also want to have that diversity around the writer's table, giving depth to those characters. Mm. I've been in a few writer's rooms myself where I'm the only one. And I have to represent that depth of the full, you know, African-American experience, 1619 to present Uh for men, women, and gender expansive identities, all of that. And so having just one is also insufficient, particularly when you have a dozen people writing whiteness, and then you have one underrepresented group member writing all of the other things. So if you care about the quality of your product, the depth of your product, the ways in which that shows up, then you absolutely have to have a diverse writer's room. Uh, That reminds me of something you point out in the book, which is that there are many instances in which there maybe a main character has a friend's group and there's the jock and there's the nerd and there's like the goody two-shoes and then there's the black kid, right? And that's kind of... The sidekick. Yeah. Rachel True is so good on the describing the sidekick in the documentary Horror Noir. Mm. She was cast so often as a sidekick and her only job was just to make sure that her white bestie was okay. And so she found herself across movies going, are you okay? (laughs) 
<laughs> are you okay? Are you okay? And what that meant, which is so powerful, is certainly there was an emphasis on the well-being of her white friend, but it also meant that Blackness, again, was fully in service to whiteness and had no story, no backstory of their own that we were supposed to care about. Mm -hmm. I guess you already have mentioned that, and I fully agree with you on this point, that the Oscars, maybe they're the wrong measure of success, just given their rather checkered past in how they acknowledge anything having to do with anyone who's not white. But there are moves in the Oscars, which could have some effect, right, to require people to hire a certain number of crew members who come from underrepresented groups in order to qualify for best picture or something like that. I believe that rule goes into effect next year, the year after. Mm -hmm. Are those kinds of measures ones that you have any expectations for, or do you feel like they have limited utility? I think I would shoot down a different sort of down the middle. Yeah. You will see some in Hollywood bristle at what they believe are quotas. Yeah. And resist or reject that or do be pulled along begrudgingly. There will be others who will sort of scramble and be inclusive, but maybe not thoughtfully because they're like, oh, right. And now we need a Black guy or, you know, that kind of thing. Yep. What I would say is that we need as many tools in our tool belt. So while I'm skeptical about whether that is the solution, I think that it is one part of a solution toward motivating Hollywood to be more inclusive. Would we rather that they see the value and do it on their own to, you know, include a wide range of their, you know, their neighbors, the citizenry, the humanity? Yes. Well, clearly that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So this is one, but it cannot be the only tool. I want to ask you about something you closed the book with in order to close our conversation, which you've alluded to already, which is you write about watching the riots at the Capitol on January 6th. And you, and this is a quote, you're questioning if fiction can ever best the terror of real life with its pandemics, coups, traffic stop fatalities, failed levies, water crises, school shootings, and rabid Karens, which of course we're like seeing on TikTok, right? You say that Black horror's triumph is that it reflects more deeply on the ways in which Black history has been and always continues to be in some ways Black horror, right? This is a really profound thought for me because horror taps into our fears, but there is a way in which the movies you write about are different from the kind of like fantasy horror of a movie that worries about like ghosts or like getting stuck, I don't know, in a remote Swedish haven with murderous villagers, a movie I love. <laughs> so would you say that there's more potential there? Like why, why is it that Black horror tends to be so successful at tapping into those things? Yeah, I, I'm pretty generous in quoting others because there's a lot of smart people who are thinking about horror. Yeah. And one of those is Tanana Reeve Du, who really smartly said, Black history is Black horror. Mm -hmm. That's a powerful theme. And you see that theme taken up in Nia DaCosta's Candyman, but particularly the Candyman trailer, mm. which features a puppet show that reminds us that this is a country that executed George Stinney, a 13-year-old, tiny, tiny child, right, under 
very unclear, perhaps even made up circumstances about a murder. And we're not talking about executions the way we know them today, that there's a trial and it goes on for a long time. But this was in a matter of hours where he's found guilty. There's no representation. That trailer also shows the lynching of James Byrd Jr., who was drugged behind a pickup truck by white supremacists, right, to his death. Black history is Black horror. That's what that's getting at. And the police murders, the way that Eugene Goodman stood and protected this country, single-handedly protected the democracy, is a complete flip on the ways in which we've understood what heroism looks like in the real or the imagined, right? He did that. He saved Congress. So that's what we're trying to remind people with that ending is that our country is moving through a very horrifying period that I hope is truly a period and not the ways in which we will live. That also means that on the big and small screen, we've got to come up with other ways to scare us, right, in an entertaining way, because the real world is so horrifying on its own. Mm. You've spent so much time thinking about this topic. If you were to think about what you hope to see in a Black horror movie in maybe 10 years or 20 years or 50 years, if we still have movies around then, what would you want to see? What kinds of areas are ripe for exploration or expansion? There are two that excite me. And, and if someone said, name, you know, movies that do this, I would struggle to do that. So there, there are two. Mm. The first is I really am excited to see themes of Afrofuturism. Like, what does the world look like? A new and imagined world in the horror space. What does that look like? And what does horror look like when you take away, you know, sort of anti-Blackness and white supremacy hovering over the Black existence? That would be really cool. What does that horror look like? And then the other is, is I do think we continue to struggle with the ways in which we represent women and LGBTQ or gender expansive identities. We don't know how to break out of those tropes, uh, you know, around sexism and misogyny. I would love to see kind of even a pairing of that kind of futurism and around, you know, diverse genders and sexualities. There's so much we haven't done. That's the future of horror. That's so exciting. I can't wait for that future. Let's hope that it happens. <laughs> Robin, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really a pleasure. I think very enlightening. I'm very inspired to go watch some of the films from your book. And uh, I wish you and Mark all the best with it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Eric Janikas is our producer. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. You can let the team know what you think by sending us an email at thegrayarea at vox.com. And if you appreciated this episode, please do share it with all your friends on all the socials. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe.